0: Presbyterian Church in Temecula California uh, where it is uh, warm a lot of the year Um, so just that's great yeah (laughs) yeah and so let's um, keep making your way in I'm gonna go ahead and open up open us in prayer and then turn it over to Jesse so let's let's go to the Lord in prayer dear Almighty God uh, Lord we thank you that you are such a generous God, we thank you for the gift of your son and the celebration of his sacrifice on our behalf and the resurrection um, that is is ours because of him. Lord, we thank you for uh, a coming feast and that you are an excessive God. Uh, Lord, would you please bless us as uh, you teach us more this morning? Pray for Jesse, Lord, that... Uh, you would just give him clarity of thought and uh, clarity of his words. And may your Holy Spirit uh, use these things to encourage your saints here. And uh, Lord, just please, uh, would you be with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. I
0: appreciate you you, you
1: brave souls for coming back for more of this madness. No. Um, I just want to do... In this last talk, uh, hopefully, for those of you who weren't with us over the weekend, hopefully this won't just be coming out of nowhere, Uh, I'll give a little background, Uh, but to answer some of the questions, well, what do we do just on the ordinary days? You know, you've talked about, you know, our need for leisure and for feasting and those sorts of things. I want to kind of pare it down to what most of your life uh, is actually dealing with, which is just ordinary time and ordinary moments. Um, we spoke uh, this past weekend about how leisure reminds us that we have need of nothing, uh, that we are enough in Christ, that we have enough, um, and that we have this opportunity on things like Sabbath or in leisure and feasting uh, to uh, do nothing and instead think about what is done uh, on your behalf. Uh, you know, we talked about the normal day being a working day and these days being days um, that are... That are spent doing something other than? Uh, well, this morning I want to talk about uh, the reality that while God has big plans for the world, uh, we, are, we are pretty small people uh, in it, and so how do we deal with some, you know, some of those tensions? The good news is that everyone has the ability to change the horizon of possibility. Each one of you uh, really does, um, and this is going to probably sound more Kyperian than I mean it to, but that's I'm in, I'm in Kuiper country, so who knows? Um, uh, we can change the culture uh, within a really small domain. Most of us have the ability to make a difference in the lives of those immediately near us and intimate to us, such as family and friends, um, and in that way, in the smallest sense, people can change culture. The, that's the good news. The bad news is that on the larger scale, no one can change culture. Uh, There's not one person that has the power to change the horizon of possibility for every human being on the planet. Um, So the question is, where are we uh, on that scale of maybe, you know, the really important people who who can change maybe bigger swaths of culture, uh, and then most of us who can change uh, the lives of, you know, a designated amount of people that are providentially near us in our lives. So ask yourself, you know, where have I been placed? Where have you been planted and rooted um, that you have the ability to make a difference? Um, And where could you go, you know, called by the grace of God to extend or to make that difference? Um, And begin to then ask yourself if that's where most of your thought energy and time and worry go in any given week. Um, I don't know about you, I live in a, a town that is mainly a commuter town, so we're a, a bedroom community uh, off of San Diego, but now the traffic's so bad it feels like it's a state away, um, so <laughs> very difficult for, the, for those guys that commute. Um, but with the commute, of course, you have to listen to things, uh, and a lot of people listen to talk radio And uh, in talk radio, of course, it's 24 7, you know, some kind of political discourse that's usually at like level nine and a half. You know, the sky is always almost about to fall. Well, the problem with that is, you know, these guys hear that for minimally two hours a day, and that begins to fill their mind as if that's really where they're going to affect the world is by sitting and getting angry about things that they really can't change. You know, once every few years, they'll get to cast a vote, and that will really be the end of their involvement in that, but they spend hours and hours and energy, uh, you know, uh, of energy pouring over and worrying about and being angry about things that they have no impact on. And so ask yourself the question, you know, where are your concerns and worries and anxieties? Where uh, is your energy? And then is it in relation to, or in proper relation to, where you actually have been planted by God uh, and is it really focused on the lives uh, and the people that you can affect there? Um, a subject that has become kind of a byword in our culture is the fact that uh, we are, uh, you know, workers in one sense by nature. You know, six days were to work and one day were to rest, uh, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I think a lot of times in our culture with, you know, kind of uh, the way that we view retirement or even the way that we view employment, you know, the goal is to do something big enough and quick enough to never have to work again (laughs) or to work long enough to where you can get to a place where you don't have to work anymore. Uh, But unfortunately, because of that, you know, it's tainted our view of work and it's kind of put a negative hue, uh, cast a negative hue over the whole of it. Um... But every man and woman, even every boy and girl, uh, has been called to work. Uh, It may not be called to employment, but, you know, from chores to studies to tidying up the garage to building skyscrapers or writing poems about those skyscrapers, all of it is work, and all of it, if done properly and legally, is good and beautiful. Um, God fathered all work, and He called it good. Part of our problem is that we tend to, because of the fall, always run away from the good, or call it something other than it is, you know, call what God has called good, evil. Um, but notice, I mean, the original calling, at least in the most kind of basic terms, six days you're to work, one day you're to rest, so sixth, six-sevenths of your life is to be taken up with work, and, you know, one-seventh rest, and I don't know about you, but that's a, that sounds sad, um, But it sounds sad because of, again, the way that work is encountered now and also because of the realities of the fall and how it interrupts our work. And I think it takes reorienting yourself to what work is to understand how that could be true. You know, work is not just the thing that you get a paycheck for. You know some of you work very, very hard, and no one gives you a pay stub at the end of the week. You know I see all these moms holding babies, um, and while uh, you may get some thank yous here and there, uh, not as many as you should, you know no one's uh, giving you a w2 at the end of the year for w- for what you 've uh, engaged in. You know all of our children, from ages you know one to fifteen, at least legally, unless you work on a farm, and then you can do whatever you want, uh, are workers who don't get a pay stub, um, and I think for many of us in our mind. Work equals what gets you money, um, and of course, the more money, the better the work. Uh, but work and money, or vocation and money, uh, are not one and the same. And many times, our calling, our vocation, and our work isn't one and the same. Uh, and this is a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. I mean, if you're a, a, a you know, let's, I'll talk to the men because, uh, well, because you're easier to pick on. No, um, you know. You may be called to a particular sort of employ, you know, you're an engineer, uh, and that may be what you really wanted to do. Many people are doing jobs that they didn't really want to do, they're just doing them, right? Uh, and we think, well, how can I, you know, really engage in a vocation if I didn't want to become this thing, but here I am stuck in that. Well, Well, what got you stuck, or at least that's how you phrase it? A lot of times, it was your other vocations that in one sense forced you to take that job because you know, you're know you a father, that's part of your vocation. You're a husband, that's one of your vocations. You know Maybe you're a little league coach uh, and this will provide you opportunity. Or maybe you're a poet, just no one wants to buy your poems uh, and that's fine, we live in a world that has bad taste so that might not be a bad thing that they don't want to buy your poems. You'll, you'll die and then maybe then they'll become famous. Um, but in order to support your actual vocation, what you really feel is you know, are all these separate vocations you have this particular employment. They're not always one and the same, and I think that becomes a difficult thing for us to wrestle with and minimizes sometimes why we do what we do. But two facts we must know if we're going to understand work a bit more clearly are these two things. First that work is ordained by God and it's pronounced good. Work is a good thing, it's not a negative thing. Um, and even that on a Monday morning can help uh, how you engage in anything if you believe that. The other thing you must know, and this is probably what you feel more than the first one, is that work got a lot more difficult thanks to the fall, right? The fall has made work uh, a tedious thing uh, and at times a frustrating thing. Um, You know, before the fall, calling and labor and community and telos were married at every step. There was never any uh, any disjunction between those things. All work had built in the glory of true accomplishment. The satisfaction of making and finding meaning, the benefit of expressing the core of our human identity, it wedded the start of a project with the great goal of the world itself. Man knew what he was doing and why and for whom, and thus man knew who he was and where he belonged and to whom. Uh, And that's a far cry, you know, from where we're at presently. So with the fall came this reality of futility that, you know, uh, really uh, bugged up the works. The danger of a talk on work uh, and the ordinary life is that we forget the fall, and then we start talking about work and calling, and we get these grandiose ideas about uh, and visions for, you know, dominion and change, uh, which in one sense uh, is what we want if we're defining those things rightly. But it's not quite that easy because now work can be, or at least seems to be, futile. Um, You know, you can make ball bearings and have them melted down the next day, right? You can sell paper products uh, uh, in, in Scranton and work with a bunch of people, you know, that are just very odd. <laughs> um, you know, the people that you wouldn't sit next to on the bus are sitting next to you uh, at your desk. You know, that is part of, our, uh, part of the futility of this life. Uh, you might dig a hole, the uh, author of Ecclesiastes said, just to get up tomorrow and be told to fill it in again. Um, you know, the weeds will grow back. Uh, the garage will get cluttered again. and Boy, do I know the pain of that. Um, and that really is uh, part of the futility of what has happened in that creation is no longer in full cooperation with us. Uh, it has been subjected to futility because of us, uh, and therefore there's this push and pull when we work uh, that can get pretty frustrating uh, when you're trying to accomplish things in this world. Um, but even in the futility, work is good. Even if your work makes you feel like, you know, a robot uh, programmed to collect and sort and order. Because in the ordering and reordering and reordering of things again, we are be- we are acting like God in little and myriad ways. Um, that is a reference to WALL-E, by the way, which is one of the greatest films of all time, if you haven't seen it. Um, you know, uh, And really, it's interesting. Uh, Brad Bird was asked, What's Wally about? And his answer was Jesus. And so, if that's not good advertising for it, I don't know what is. But it really is a fine film. Um, It really gets to this point to warn us, you know, as human beings, not to be launched into space in order that we may avoid work, self indulge, and run from our calling as mankind, but we're to come back and labor um, and, in that way, reflect our Maker. You know, work is beautiful. It is a good thing that God has given us. And there is the tension. You know, we're called to order in a world that is disordered. Uh, we're called to order in a world that is presenting us with futility, that is going to, you know, fight back against what we're doing. Uh, but even in the simplest things, you know, like making your bed, you are being like God and thus changing the world for good. Um, how many of you have saw... Um, the uh, Admiral uh, McRaven's address at, at UT years ago, um, the commencement uh, speech. No one? No takers on that? Um, uh, interesting uh, talk in uh, 2014. He, he's talking about the steps that he's put into his life You know that really have helped him. And he, he says one of them was to make his bed every morning. And here's the reason he gives. If you make your bed every morning you will have accomplished the first task of the day. And by the way, this isn't a talk on making your bed, but uh, it will give you a small sense of pride and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, You will at least come home to a bed that's made. And a made bed gives you the encouragement, maybe tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed." Uh, He's not far off on that. Um, In that, uh, as we see, our work isn't in one sense about manipulating the world to change, but the world does change if we go about our callings rightly, uh, with the right disposition. we order things, and in that way we are like God, but also our work is an act of service to God if done in love. Um, you know, maybe you've heard the, the phrase labor of love, but I would like to, to rephrase that in your own mind, that labor, or our work, or our calling, whatever that may be, you know, from you know, your employment to your mothering to whatever, is a form of love. Doing those actions is part of how love makes itself manifest in the world. Because in the doing of thing, a thing, anything, and doing it well, we reflect our Creator, uh, and thus, in that way, we love other people. We love the people that are around us, you know. Uh, it's easy to see, you know, maybe in like an Amish barn raising, like their work is really showing love. Um, but we're always showing love uh, as we're we're working. Um, You know, we can love other people by doing a good job. The Bible says, love God by loving your neighbor. And then the Bible says, work six days. And you think the Bible meant like, well, you know, you're going to have to work for six days, but when you have some free time, love your neighbor. One of the ways that you show love to your neighbor is by doing whatever you're called to do and doing it well. That is a form of loving those who are around you. You know, the Bible teaches you that you have two choices. You can either serve God or money. And if we believe work is just about the paycheck, we've already answered the question of who we're serving, right? Uh, I do this to get my paycheck, thus serving mammon. You need to reorient your way of thinking about everything you put your hand to as a way of expressing love to God. And if expressing love to God truly, according to 1 John We are also loving our brother in the doing of it rightly. Um, Dorothy Sayers puts it this way, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he make good tables. (laughs) You know, your work is a medium by where you offer yourself to God to His world, and to others. You know, you do this best by offering yourself to man, um, by offering yourself to your work in the best way possible. Um, And we begin to see, when we look at that, a secret in God's revelation. That it is the little things, the ordinary things, it is the things that are right before you that ultimately He's using to change the world, to bring about Uh, his perfect new creation that he has ordered and ordained. Our cultural vision for the world is at odds, therefore, with the vision of our present culture. I mean, think of how our culture operates. Uh, We value things like stardom and celebrity and, you know, impact makers. You know, you turn on TED Talks and it's like, okay... I listened to three of them. Like I've got to get way better at life than I am right now, and I've got you know I'm really pumped up because I heard those. And I'm you know, and then by you know three hours later, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'll just be ordinary. (laughs) But it's those sorts of people who get the press, they get the accolades and the attention. We love excitement and change and the new thing and the big thing. Uh, It has pushed uh, our culture has pushed this vision onto all of us, from young to old. You know, we are called, you know, to to be world changers and stars. You know, no one celebrates the fact that they have an average child. But the reality is, over half of your kids are average or below average. I mean, statistically speaking, that's just uh, the way it is. Uh, and all of you are like, well, not my kids, I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> and yet, of course, what we prize is, you know, oh, you know, this child did this, we're going to, you know... The reality is most of our life is ordinary. Most of us, in one sense, are ordinary. The rise, of course, of social media has helped people to seek to construct this sort of world. You know, mini-stardom. You can become your own celebrity. And not only your own celebrity, you can instantly find out how you rank in the world, right? Uh, you know, little, these little self-justification tabs. Like, I got 70 people who love me, according to this thing. You know, never mind. It's like a built-in prerequisite. If you're friends, you have to like it you know uh, and it's if you're not like well why are they mad at me what what did they hate about my post uh, but we get this built in you know special reinforcement it's a world where we like the special um, but then we have to make everyone also feel special it's a strange conglomeration you know much like the move, uh the Lego movie you're the most talented most interesting most extraordinary guy in the universe and so is everybody <laughs> but uh you know, we, we try to construct this world where we really do present in our own life. See, we're making it. We're, we're also, you know, up there and ranking in the world at the, uh, the way that the world says. You know, um, Alina Tugin tackled the same issue from a slightly different angle in her New York Times column, Redefining Success and Celebrating the Unremarkable, in which she uses Brene Brown's line In the world, in this world, in ordinary life has become synonymous. With a meaningless life. Uh, With that sort of cultural vision being pressed on us, how does that affect the way that we do life as Christians? I mean, does it affect how you view, view people? And does it affect how you answer the question, what are people for? You know, if you're trying to build something, people become either fans or product consumers or you know those who will build your brand uh, it becomes a very dangerous thing when what you're trying to do is promote yourself in your life I mean does it affect relationships and what we're willing to endure in relationships if you've had any long-term relationship of any sort what is one fact that is inescapable that at some point it's going to be miserable and you're not going to like that person much anymore uh, and again, if it 's just about building our brand or becoming more you know, successful uh, you know, in the world 's eyes or getting ahead, people who drag that down, you know people who require time and meetings and you know apologies that's just a weight that is unbearable. I mean, does it affect our willingness to just settle in for the long haul if we don't see big things happening? Does it imp- affect our ability to slow down do difficult things that with the, over the long haul, have long-term results? How does it interpret for us the blandness that makes up for most of our in-between times in life? I mean, most of your life is not going to be what's posted uh, through your vacation pictures on your social media feed, right? That was that one week out of the 52 that you lived that year. Most of your ordinary times are just the bland times with nothing, if you will, uh, overly exciting going on in them. What do we do with those normal moments of life? And what will we do with them if we're uh, viewing them in this sort of way? What does this sort of mentality in our culture teach us about work and family and friends and community and location and free time and money? Uh, The Onion wrote uh, this particular article, Unambitious loser with happy, fulfilling life still lives in his hometown. Uh, longtime acquaintances confirmed to reporters this week that local man, Michael Humsmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and has no desire to leave. Claiming that the aimless slouch has never resided more than two hours from his parents and still hangs out with friends from high school, sources close to Humsmer reported that the man who has meaningful, lasting personal relationships and a healthy work-life balance is an unmotivated washout who's perfectly comfortable being a nobody for the rest of his life. Quote, I've known Mike my whole life. He's a good guy, but it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction, said childhood friend David Gorman. As soon as Mike graduated from college, he moved back home, started working at a local insurance firm. Now he's nearly 30 years old, living in the exact same town he was born in, working at the same small-time job, and is extremely contented in all aspects of his home and professional lives. It's really sad, end quote. But ingrained in many of us, though that's, you know, very tongue-in-cheek, is the idea that something big or exciting needs to be happening, or we have failed Or at least should be dissatisfied and longing for something that's coming down the pike. I mean, ask yourself how often discontent bubbles up in you. Uh, How often do you feel a sense of needing or wanting more? uh, And not even being sure of what the want or the need out there is that you have. You just know this can't be it. I mean, do you want to be noticed and known? Ask yourself why and where does that come from? What is the aim and where is it all heading? What is the big goal of life? And what's your place in it? Uh, is it supposed to be this big, exciting, world-changing thing? And if so, what's the big payoff if you get it? You know, the Bible does make or give to us a big vision of the world. It makes plain that God's goal is truly world-transforming, right? There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There's nothing less than that on the, uh, that's on the docket. And in some sense, it's no wonder that people have a feeling that they were made for more. That somehow the workaday life of the average person can't be all that there is. And that's true. We were made for merely more than work or mere existence. We were made for glory. And there's something in us that knows that we were made for it. But how we go about seeking it without God's instruction is always problematic. And it's always self-defeating. And it always uh, dr- draws, drums up more discontent than we had previously. Well, how does the vision come to pass? Well, if great things are to be accomplished, we assume that great things must be done, right? Uh, if the goal is great and we've got to succeed in some big way, well then surely some big stuff is what gets us there. Um, if the, law, the vision is large and cosmic in scope, then the means to get there must also be large, impressive, and similar to what our culture is saying. Unfortunately, uh, the church has bought into this manner of thinking. Um, where ministry, of course, must be exciting and radical. You know, you've got to dare to do big things. Men's ministries are notoriously bad at this, where it's like, you know, what's your men's ministry called? You can't just be men's ministry. That's way too tame. You know, it's, I'm always scared to say this because I don't know what your men's ministry is called, so I may be. <laughs> You know, the holy platoon of muscle-bound, you know, world beaters for Jesus are meeting on Tuesday. It's got to be something, like, really big. Um, but what happens, you know, the week after the big conference or, you know, once you finish the book, when you get home and your kids still have attitudes and your communication with your spouse is still horrible, or you still struggle in that area of sin. You still have to go to work at the same job with the same boss who undervalues you and puts you to the same and put your hand to the same mundane task that you've been doing for twenty years. You know, what often happens is a deep-seated dissatisfaction, or even beyond that, a despair, you know, what we have come to term midlife crisis and many other things. Uh, We either need to change everything, right? I need a Corvette, or do something bigger and better, or we get sorely depressed about our lot in life and wonder how we got here, knowing that the hole is just too deep to dig out of now. I mean, when I counsel men, one of the things I always hear or often hear is, "Oh, I mean, it's too late for me to change careers now. But what's underneath that is, like, I know i got to change my whole life if I'm ever going to be happy. Um, But then, of course, the Bible comes up against what we as the church and the world believe will work. You know, something major has to happen in order for God's major plan to come about. And it starts talking about really simple things and ordinary lives and seems completely contented with that being what we're to be about in this world and doesn't change the fact that everything's going to change because of it. I mean, we see, it's not hard to see why the church often gets misguided. You know, we see the apostles, you know, doing miracles. We see these great revivals happening. We see thousands coming to the church. You know, Christ is healing the sick and raising the dead. You know, the prophets do amazing things. Uh, And then we think, well, then if the church is going to be successful uh, in this age, we probably should be doing amazing things as well. And while no doubt we should study those passages of Scripture, and they're surely all true, uh, they're happening in a different place in history than you and I are currently living in. Uh, and by the time the apostles start writing the church uh, uh, at the, toward the close of the canon and starts talking to congregations you know that aren't traveling uh, to Jerusalem to keep feasts, they're just living in the same town they've been living in, you see a major shift in how the apostles are addressing these people and what they're supposed to be doing with their time in order to serve the kingdom. Um, They aren't asking them to go out and seek to be imprisoned or even protest or work miracles in the city square. Uh, Instead, they say things like, you know, husbands love your wives and wives honor your husbands and so forth. It's a far cry from the radical drumbeat uh, that we often call faithfulness. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Note with me that Paul takes the grand view to start. He begins with the big people, the important ones, you know, the movers and the shakers, and he enjoins the church, pray for them. Pray for the highest powers in the known world. And notice his purpose clause. Why? Why should you pray for them? So you can live a quiet life and just be godly and dignified. You know, not so that you can also, you know, join the cabinet necessarily, or, you know, you can uh, uh, be front and center in the paper next week. Just so that you can go about your business as a godly Christian without any interference or molestation. In a culture that says if you're somebody, you've got to make some noise, or a church culture that says you have to be radical or else, Paul says, pray for the big shot so that you can just have a quiet life that in one sense is unnoticeable. In one sense. Unless you think Paul has maybe lost the grand vision, or you know he's just not speaking rightly, he has the big picture of world glory in mind when he, uh, when he gives them that commandment. The next thing he says is, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all peoples to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul hasn't forgotten the big goal. You know, all nations, every tribe, kindred, tongue, and spirit, a a company that is innumerable, that no man can count, flooding into the kingdom at the last day. Paul goes, yeah, that's still the goal, so pray so you can live a quiet life, assuming that doing so somehow also coincides with bringing about this final end. He says the same, uh, similar thing in First Thessalonians 4, 11. aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Notice Paul's language, we should aspire, it's, it's the word that we would translate in our own language, ambition, have an ambition for this, and he says, have an ambition to live a quiet life. <laughs> Like, be really ambitious. When we think of that, we're like, okay, you know, is he going to go, he must be moving to New York. You know, he's going to be going somewhere big, doing something big, having a title. And Paul says, make your ambition this, that you live quietly. Um, And Paul says, you make this your ambition to live quietly, mind your own business, work with your hands, uh, which sounds a lot different than what we would say in our own culture. You know, live loud, You've got to put people on blast. You can't mind your own business being everybody else's business. You know, work is for suckers, not something you should be seeking. Uh, we, should, we want something to do that's easy. Uh, but notice again, Paul's reason, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So Paul is not l- uh, losing his vision for seeing the world saved and come to uh, its glorious conclusion. He says, I want outsiders in the kingdom. I want this great company and host of people saved, so what I want you to do is live quietly and go about your business faithfully. And somehow, in Paul's mind, those two things are completely connected and conjoined. Part of why this doesn't sell, of course, is not just because our culture is against it, but our nature is against it. Uh, You know, folks don't like typically Uh, you know, uh, in our culture, we don't typically parade around, even in the church, um, folks who just live quiet lives, right? You know, they don't speak at conferences and sell books. You know, we we need, who's the important person, you know, that we need to have come and tell us, you know, uh, what to do. Uh, We undervalue in that way, simple vocation and really value for whatever reason, mini celebrity. While according to scripture, Those things undermine the big goal of glory in all things. Uh, The Bible has shown us, you know, no matter what your calling is presently the method of success, um, that we really do believe in a, a theology of the cross, not just as a thing that atones for our sins, which it surely does, but shapes our very lives, right, and shapes our way of viewing reality, Uh, what things are wise and what things are good, it all has to be filtered through the cross if we're going to see anything rightly, if you're going to have the right vision for anything in this world. Um, Our salvation is rooted, you'll notice, in the weakest part of Christ's ministry, not in His most powerful moments. When Paul wants to tell us of God's greatest act of love or His greatest power to redeem or His greatest moment of triumph, It's not Jesus turning water into wine or healing the sick or calming the sea. It's Jesus giving up of himself, opening not his mouth, and sacrificing all that he has for others. It's this act of humiliation and weakness and apparent defeat by which God wins over all the powers that be. The foolishness of God, we are told, or the foolishness of the cross, is the very wisdom of God. The seeming wisdom of glory, Paul says, is the utter foolishness of the world. And if we don't get that right in our heads, not just theologically, but how we approach, you know, Monday morning and Tuesday morning, because it's going to look a lot like Monday morning and Wednesday, then you're going to be constantly frustrated and missing some of the great splendors of this life. You know, if the cross is God's wisdom then you'll notice he uses the cross as a signpost of how he's going to get his work done elsewhere. Notice, I mean, think of the the ministry of the church. He says, you know, I'm going to to, um, contain the glory of uh, of Christ in the gospel that is spoken by broken down people, you know, Words where, you know, guys fumble over what they're saying, and, you know, you've had enough interns here. Uh, You know how it starts. It's not a pretty thing. Sorry if you're an intern. Uh, And yet, Christ even uses those words, right? Uh, Faithfully taught through the Scriptures, To change people's lives. I mean, how many of you have had pastors uh, in in the past or maybe in other locations? Uh, Dale, from what I I know, is a a very articulate minister. But there are others who aren't that great, right, at the preaching portion of ministry. That's not their strongest skill set. And yet, faithfully engaged in, still bring about the glorious result of God's people being formed in His image. Uh, You know, it's words where Paul would say, I could speak in a sophisticated way in 2 Corinthians. I could be like the sophist. He says, I intentionally will not speak in some slick manner lest I rob the gospel of all of its power. That the gospel is in weakness, so I will present it in weakness, lest you confuse the message with the medium that the message is coming through. If I come through powerfully, then you're going to think the gospel uh, and the way of the cross is powerful. You know, how does God feed us? You know, broken bread and, you know, a little bit of wine, and he says, you know, this is the very food of heaven that will feed you to eternal life. You know, there are these weak things that he ministers through to us that he says, these are what are going to keep you into glory. Hearing this weak message week after week, receiving bread and wine time after time, these are going to keep you fit for the kingdom as you hold on to them by faith. And then he says, and I want you to leave here being empowered by these weak things And we automatically think, well, then as soon as I leave these doors, the mode must be power when I get out there, right? If I'm going to change things out there, even though he does all his things through weakness in here, when we go out in the world, things only work by power out there. But that's not what God says. That's not how he wants us to engage in our work and our vocation. There is this hidden glory of the ordinary life that God would like you to embrace, you There's a bunch of verses that command it, so I I promise this is real, right? Have the ambition to have a quiet life, you know, Uh, live at peace with all men, those sorts of things. And God says, by those things, I really will revolutionize, remake the entirety of the world. God gives himself through means to the world outside of this building, meaning, you know, your pastors aren't going out there uh, to meet every person in Grand Rapids, but Christ expects His body on earth, you, to be an extension of His presence, right? Mediators of His presence in the entirety uh, of where you inhabit. God meets children most of the time through moms and dads. You know, and we know this because of covenant theology, but you have to embrace it for, for, for what it is. God's normal way of working through your children, or working, uh, his, uh, doing His work through uh, his work in your children is through the faithful, ordinary, day in and day out parenting uh, that you supply and the bringing of them, you know, week after week before his word uh, and, and them undergoing his sacraments. You know, the idea that, you know, some, some bigger thing is going to happen later on that will really impact them it, it is, a, is, a, is a fool's errand. I mean, there are things in life that have big impacts on us, no doubt. But most of the reason you are the way you are, most of the things that have really changed your life are someone did the same old thing with you time after time after time after time until it just got etched into the person that you are. Uh, and yet, we, while we know that in principle, it's not how we often seek to practice uh, spirituality. You know, God works through moms and dads and employees and employers, and the question is, are we brave enough to believe this to be faithful and to be satisfied with it, to rejoice in the ordinariness of the whole thing, to be an extension, a mediator of God's goodness in vocation and home. I mean, how will it look for the members of Christ's body to be an extension of Christ on earth? We need to pick this up. Um, they will receive one another as Christ has received them. They'll be kind to one another, they'll be tender hearted. I mean, Augustine, when he spoke uh, of Ambrose, Uh, He was talking about how eloquent he was as a minister, and he says, But I began to like him at first, indeed, not as a teacher of the truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in your church, but I began to like him as a human being who was kind to me. You know, Augustine, when you think of the impact that Augustine has had on the history of our church, and he says, you know, I didn't come to the church first and foremost because this guy had the truth or because he was eloquent. I came because He was nice to me. He showed kindness to me. The church will be patient with one another, forgiving one another, even as Christ has done for them. Um, When one part of Christ's body suffers, so will the rest. Uh, I mean, to tie the whole bundle together, we will love one another. And now we see the beginnings of the witness aspect of the church. I mean, we can be so busy looking for the next big thing that we actually miss the thing that God has called us to do. We missed the world that he's actually called us to. You know, that child sitting next to you in the car, your friend at work, that lawn out front that your wife would love you to mow. Uh, I mean, it's what it looks like um, in street clothes. You know, there's no guilt in not doing, you know, the ministry things or seeking a ministry. I mean, you can be a part of what God is doing in the world by being a listening ear, uh, a helper with smaller things, being present uh, in the lives of people. Uh, You know, Timothy taught the Bible. He had a major impact on the life of the church. And Paul goes out of his way. He says, you know, I thank your grandmother and your mother because they read the Bible to you every day. They taught you the holy scriptures from your infancy. And that daily routine that was, you know, enlisted in his life by his family led to something that would be world-changing for the church, but there's no way they could have known that. That was just what they did, you know, Monday through Sunday. It was their habit, and God used those small, ordinary actions to transform uh, the church. God's radical calling for us is in the ordinary things. I've got three minutes. I've got to do this quick. Um, Many of you may have seen this article by Tish Harrison Warren. It's kind of made its way around the Internet but I think it's worth uh, reading a portion of it. Um, I'm a 30-something with two kids living in a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village, which he had done. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning, or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. We had gone to a top college where people achieved big things. They wrote books and started nonprofits. We were told again and again that we would be world changers. We are part of a young Christian movement that encouraged us to live bold, meaningful lives of discipleship, which baptized this world-changing impetus as the way to really follow Jesus." We were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person living an average life in a beautiful way. But I've come to the point where I am not sure anymore about what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky things that I've done in the past. And she ends uh, with these words, maybe at the end of the day, end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, a budget planning on a boring Thursday will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. As we close, it's only when we begin to grasp the ordinary, it's in the ordinary that Jesus works. When you grasp that, when you really take hold of it, you will see uh, that you have opportunities all around you. A word spoken, a meal prepared, a snack brought just so a conversation elsewhere can linger. A child watched so a mother can hear a sermon for the first time in years. A house opened so the word can be heard. Time spent so people can know you care. A job well done daily so that your boss doesn't have to worry while he's away. I mean, how can we do this? You know, why would we do this? We say we want to follow Jesus. But the trouble is we don't want to follow him the way that he walks. (laughs) And he has called us, he's called out of the world the least and the little and the lost. And he did it through a life of service and brokenness, a life that was formed and shaped and intentioned always by the cross. And he calls us to join him in that. Um, Well, I'm going to have to end there, but I will say this. The reason this is important, as I close, I'm so sorry for going over, I know kids need to be let go, is that it frees you up in a myriad of ways. You are free to be normal. You don't have to put on you know, a churchy language or say the right things. God made you the way you are with the interests you have for a reason. So just go and be normal in your everyday life, and in your normality, get to know the people around you and live in service to them, right? It frees you uh, from, uh, to be joyful, to not have to take yourself so ser- seriously and stretch and strain and try to get ahead and step on people, you know, and make sure that you're the center of attention. All of that can be taken off of the table because you see it's not the goal that you have. And it does free you to be utterly optimistic, to know that the smallest thing May be just what's needed for the biggest thing ever that's going to happen. That it's the ordinary things added up in accumulation that make the great things in the world. It's not one swift action that's going to undo all things. Um, So, if you want to find the good life, to understand the joys of leisure and play and a good party, then know this not one of them is enjoyed by the self serving man, none of them are enjoyed by the lazy man, the non working man. The grand mystery indeed is this that the laziest are the most tired. And that the one who seeks to save his life always loses it. So may you, by God's grace and for his glory, just go be yourself in the mundane things of life and see that God is active in each one of those and see how you might be able to serve him uh, in the things that you wake up to all the time. Uh, God bless you guys. I would pray, but you need to go get kids. So God knows we're thankful.